This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I need to begin today's interview with the rejoinder, the views expressed in this discussion do not necessarily reflect those of the management. Now, that's just a safety measure, as I discuss with Tosh Greenslade his book, The ScoMo Diaries. So, Tosh, welcome to 3CR. Thanks very much. Your book takes a rather biting look at our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, between the time he ascended to the top job in the 2019 election. But your book does raise the whole issue of the importance of satire in politics. How necessary is it to have a healthy satirical perspective on our politicians? I feel like we have reached a point in our, in our society uh, where people are sort of so rusted on and polarised and tribal in their political beliefs that they, satire doesn't really, no one's changing anyone's mind, basically. There's no one sitting in the middle going, oh, I'm not sure which side. Um, but, but in terms of people on either side convincing each other or, or, or changing people's perception of, of leaders with satire, I think we're pretty much past that. I think we're at a point where all I'm doing really, if I'm satirising somebody, if I satirise the leader of the Labour Party or the leader of the Liberal Party or the leader of the National, like, whoever, Basically, you're just loading up uh, the opposition's gun with ammunition for them to, to, to mock them. You're making people who already believe these things feel good. You're also exposing, though, the manipulative techniques of the political parties and leaders. So, for example, you do a lot on politics and advertising. And interestingly, mm-hmm. Scott Morrison has an advertising background. But we can look at slogans. I'm listening. I'm hearing. I'm doing And then you come up with a line, you allow the consumer to assign their own meaning. It's kind of true, though. You've got these sort of these meaningless phrases that they throw out there, but they are ambiguous enough that anybody, again, can make them mean whatever they want. It used to be that it was a, a battlefield of ideas. Like you would, you would actually have to go out there and, and say, well, these are what, these are the things I believe. And these are the things I'll stand up for. Now it's just, oh, I'm in this team. So basically anything I do, you're going to vote for. And that, that is true of both sides uh, very much. That's, I don't think that's a left or a right thing. There are, and if you, uh, Twitter is the worst for it. If you want to see it in action, jump on Twitter and watch people defend things that they wouldn't normally agree with, or that they wouldn't agree with if the opposition was doing just because their leader has done it. The person you vote for should be based on what you believe, not the other way around. And I think we've, I think we've got it backwards now. Is that a criticism of the politics or of the constituents that are vacuous? Is politics vacuous or are we as voters simply simple-minded? I think we're at a point where this we've got what politicians want. Like we've we're in the ideal world for politicians right now. <laughs> it's it's just a matter of who's got the most people on their side. But I think it's it's years and years of social media conditioning us to to only believe what we see and and sort of to they filter worldviews through to us that we already probably agree with. And, and take quite a lot of the rest of it out. And so if you're not exposed to it, it's like if you sit inside all day and it's a freezing cold day and you step outside, even wearing a jumper, you feel the cold that much more keenly than if you've been in the cold for a while or if you've had a draft coming through your house. You're like, um, oh, it's, it's that 
that shock of, of the change in temperature that you feel the most keenly. And so you, you start shivering. Whereas if you walked out in, in the, in the cold in a t-shirt and you're out there for an hour, by the end of it, you're like, well, it's not so bad. Another line you've got here, which picks up on what some of what you've been saying, which shows how empty things are or how manipulated things are. Empathy is a social manipulation tactic. Do politicians <laughs> have empathy today? Well, I think they've got as much empathy as they need to when you vote, really. Or they've, they've, they need your perception of their empathy to be at a certain level. And that is how much they will show or how much they will pretend to show. And, and once they've got your vote, that's sort of all they need. Most politicians today, and this is, again, another big problem, their job is not to make the country better. They're not there to sort of make things better or change things or, or move things towards their ideal version of this world or their constituents' ideal version of this world. They're there to get their job again at the next election. Like what other job in the world do you have a performance review once every three years and that's the only time your boss can fire you? The rest of the time you can slack off and do absolutely nothing. You could, you could turn up to work, sit in the office and just throw paper at each other and, and shout and rabble and go rrr, 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 like that, uh, like they do in question time. And, uh, and no one can fire you until it gets to that performance review in three years. And even then, the, the choice is not, okay, have you been doing a good job? It's, or do I want the other ones to come in and do, I've got this other one person that could possibly do your job. Do I reckon they're going to be better? I don't know. Maybe I'll just stick with you because I know who you are. And even then, if you do a bad job as a politician, you'll be protected by your party mm. because mm. it's a um, hung parliament and therefore we've got to keep the numbers. So we actually applaud incompetence. Yeah, although I think the hung parliament is probably the best version of uh, what we've currently got. If you look at the last, oh, say, 20 years, I think the most productive parliament we've had has been hung, like in terms of legislation passed. I, I like a hung parliament. I'm hoping for a hung parliament. Here's another one for you. We are continuing to have that discussion. It's a way of avoiding answering anything or owning up to anything or doing anything. Yeah, for all anyone can say about him, he, he is very good at what the current job is. He is incredibly good at keeping his job. So as soon as you take responsibility, that's when it's a scandal. But if you just ignore the uh, completely and don't answer any questions on it, another scandal will come along soon enough and take the place in, in everybody's, uh, at the front of everybody's mind that the previous one held and people forget about it and they move on. And that's, that's the trick. I think, to, to keeping your job is you just jump from thing to thing and just completely ignore it. You never say sorry. You never have to deal with it. You also touch on some interesting topics, uh, the environment and things like that, but you have a, a lovely little slant here. Should we be teaching the history of coal? That's the other thing about this book. A lot of it is just me making jokes that entertain myself as well <laughs> half, of, half of it, it as much as it is sort of a, a caricature of Scott Morrison there's a worrying amount of me in there <laughs> the the bit at the end where he's uh, where he's in Hawaii and he keeps taking all the bacon from the um from the Bay Marie at the hotel that 
that's literally something I did as a child. When I went on holiday with my parents, my parents had to tell me to take my plate back and put at least half of the bacon left uh, back into the bain-marie so the other people could have even one piece of it. And then I say that the prime minister did that. That's not fair to him, but it's funny. Also, the absurdities. The Opera House as a billboard or heritage monuments for advertising. I mean, politics is really frightening, according to your book, because it's it's all just image. The most worrying part about that, though, is that it's real. <laughs> like that's not something I made up. That's that literally happened. That's that's the other thing. Even even writing this book. So I wrote it in 2020. So even writing it in 2020 about the previous year and a half. I couldn't believe how much I'd forgotten. So things like the, the them them putting uh, basically racing advertising on the projecting onto the side of the opera house and people being outraged about that and, and the prime minister coming out and saying, no, it's a great thing. It's a great idea. It's good. And so I, yeah, again, I, I probably exaggerated that a little bit and said that we could probably do it on more heritage listed sites, but you know, like it's, it, it, it happened. We forget these things, which mm. yeah, it's extraordinary that there was a department for energy and the environment previously. That's another one. It's absurd yeah. now when you think back. Uh, you could say that energy and environment do go together, but if you are running on a very pro coal platform, I don't know if digging things out of the ground counts as environment. Like, sure, it's part, like the dirt is part of the environment. Sure, the coal is part of the environment. But once you dig it out and burn it, I think it stops being part of the environment. Much in the same way, I don't think if you cut down a tree, that tree is still part of the environment. It's not. It's a table. I love the one on politics in the digital age as well, the photoshopped shoes. I'd forgotten about these. Another thing. Again, you forget about that. You forget that he that he was wearing kind of ugly shoes. And so they did the worst photo job, Photoshop job imaginable and put these sparkling white shoes from some stock image site over the top of them. And everyone went, what is that? What have you done? Like, why have you done that? You don't need to do that. Just wear better shoes. But then you can also find out because, you know, you can see it's been Photoshopped. So mm. why would a marketing executive do that? I think they are that removed that they're just like, oh, no one will notice. Doesn't matter. And that's like, doesn't matter is probably not indicative of somebody who should be earning $500,000 a year in any company. Andrew Weldon's illustrations. I love these. They, yeah, they're so good. The one that I liked was of the boat, especially which we know Scott Morrison has a boat with I Stop These on it in his office. I Stop These is on the side of the boat and Andrew Weldon's illustration, Ambulance, is mm. written underneath. Oh, one word, one yeah. word. Oh, my goodness. He's, he's very, very good. Like, I, there's there's almost a, an anarchist slant to, to the way. It's sort of schoolboyish and and a bit punk rock and a bit just scribbly and a bit scratchy, but with the, the that biting tone to it. And he, so he read the manuscript and then he just sent over a full run of illustrations for the book. And every single one, I was like, oh my God, that's perfect. That's perfect. He's like, any, any notes on these? I was just like, yeah, just let me have them. <laughs> um, but he, he told me a story about having to draw Peter Dutton. And he said with Dutton, he couldn't find 
any of the normal characteristics in a human face that he would exaggerate to make a caricature of. So he said it was almost impossible. The, the, what he's come up with is fantastic and it, and it really does look exactly like him. But, um, yeah, he said that he's like that he didn't have a human face. I couldn't, I couldn't draw a caricature because he didn't have a face like a person. I, I think I need to remind the listener again that the views expressed in this discussion. <laughs> but anyway, no. I'm not necessarily, they don't necessarily re- reflect my views either. They're, they're, <laughs> this is what Andrew has said to me. I'm just yeah. reporting what has been said. It's reportage. We are actually going to have to draw the interview to a close, unfortunately, because <laughs> there's so much more we could talk about. But let's end on uh, where the book ends. I don't think I'm giving anything away mm. by going oh, to I don't think it's necessarily a spoiler. Where you say nothing of note will happen in the next few years. I think it's February 2020 that, that, it, that the book ends. Yeah. And then, yes, uh, the, the, the sequel would have been called Scovid 19 I think. But again, yeah, it's absolutely frightening in terms when you look at the notion of politicians looking at advertising and marketing themselves when you've got real-life issues to address and also preparing for the future rather than reacting to the future. So Mm. it's a rather frightening portent of the political framework that you're providing. Yeah, well, when you realise that um, that, the, the vaccines that we've got were developed so quickly in part because they'd already kind of been developed anyway because they were working on coronavirus vaccines back five years ago and then they lost all their funding because they went well swine flu never happened so this will never be a problem and then they yanked all their funding so we could have had we could have had vaccines considerably earlier but we didn't because we didn't prepare victoria had its uh, had its quarantine uh hospital closed down and sold off which would have been probably a lot better than the Sheraton or, or, the, or the Novotel um, for, for quarantining people in. And yeah, that's, that's the thing. It's like when you see this sort of stuff, that's when you go through it and you go, well, we did have these things. Where have they gone? And you say, oh, somebody stole, sold them. And you go, oh, okay. Could we get it back? And they say, well, no, it's too late now. We have to start again. I thought this was meant to be a humorous interview. And a <laughs> Thanks, Tosh. But Tosh, look, thank you for your time today. The book is The ScoMo Diaries, the author, Tosh Greenslade, and there are illustrations by Andrew Weldon, and it's a Penguin Random House release. So, Tosh, thank you once again. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. What makes an interesting story? Kathy Koning is going to tell us two. There is the topic of her book and how she published. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks, Jen. Health and wellness is something we often take <laughs> for granted until we haven't got it. What was your diagnosis? I had acute myeloid leukemia. That's a blood cancer, and acute means. You, if without treatment, you probably don't have long to live. And apparently there's no t- detection for this type of cancer. No, you can't just go into the doctor and say, give me a test for leukaemia. But you can, of course, have your blood tested and you might find that the levels are not quite right. 
and that could give you some sort of indication. Well, and you do right, there's over 5,000 deaths in Australia every year from this type of cancer. Mm, from blood cancers in general. Yes, oh. it's increasing and they don't really know that what causes it. There's some ideas, but, you know, they can't pin it exactly. Your book is called Lifeblood. So how long was it from your diagnosis to the cure? It took about two years, but it took a bit of time to diagnose. And that's because I go to the GP and there's a, something behind this as well, is that I have extreme needle phobia. And so I would do everything I could to not have a blood test. Uh, and you get quite good at talking you doctors into not giving you one because that's the worst thing that can happen to you in your eyes. It turns out, of course, the fear is much worse than the actual reality. So I was misdiagnosed as well um, a few times over months, but I was getting sicker and sicker and I could hardly walk around. What I should mention, what saved me was a stem cell uh, transplant from an anonymous donor. So they have to find a match for you and then those cells fight your cancer cells. And uh, so that was the cure. Well, making it more personal, you do talk about your partner's emails to you when you're in ICU and also that induced coma that you'd lived through. Yes. Well, that actually had nothing to do with the actual cancer. It was my second round of chemo. Uh, This is before the stem cell transplant. And I I got sepsis from E. coli. And, of course, that's life-threatening. But luckily, uh, the fever struck when I was in hospital, so at the Alfred. And I could go straight from the ward straight down into ICU. And I was put into an induced coma for a week. And that first night, my husband, Fred, was told, brought into the special room <laughs> to say, well, you, you know, your partner might not make it. It's, it's going to be touch and go. But luckily, I got through that. But uh, it was interesting with COVID, with people going into ICU, it's like a really feel for them. It's not a place you want to be in. It's, a, it's very, very weird. Well, you write about how fortunate you were to have good doctors and Medicare. And you also write about suki sickies, about <laughs> yeah. how difficult it is for yeah. doctors because they're not trained in dealing with bad news to patients. Uh, although I think they get, might get some training, but I know that, like my doctor, hematologist, a specialist, It's about the numbers ultimately, you know, because if your blood numbers are good, then, you know, say, for instance, when the stem cell transplant, when you've had, you know, you're calling engrafted, your blood levels will improve. And so you're always looking at the numbers every day, a blood test every day. Mm. And that's the indicator of success in a way. But, of course, there's a whole psychological aspect too, which is huge. And, you know, I don't think doctors are unaware of that. But they maybe can't be everything to everybody. And, you know, as a patient, you have to work it out. And in your book, Lifeblood, it's not just about the medical. It's also about yourself and how life experiences get in the way. You moved house twice. Yes. Personal grief 
of your mother's death and yes, my mother your died. marriage. <laughs> yeah, we've been together for 37 years. And then, so, you know, we were always said, oh, we're not ready. <laughs> and uh, then I guess the sentiment sort of changes a bit. And so we thought, well, you know, let's have a celebration. Let's celebrate the fact that we're all here. And this was before my mother died, thank goodness. So we had, we got married and had a party. And <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Your book, Lifeblood, includes how you think it might be helpful to other patients and you also yes. write about the invaluable support that family and friends give but you yes. tell in your book how they can help also yes and yes. I do think words from a friend if you are dreading and dreaming about the future you are missing what is here now mm. yes so in your book lifeblood you describe the view outside your desk so you're being a writer, did you diarise this living experience? No, because I became a writer after the cancer, during the recovery. I had done some jobs like I was a publicist for a while and I also ran a sustainable communities program and that needed, you know, reasonable writing skills. But I'd never written an article or a, a book, of course. The publishers weren't interested and, and the way this book came to being has an interesting story in itself. How exactly. did Kathy Coning become mm. a self-publisher? When I was recovering, there was a suitcase of memorabilia of my husband's great-aunt who was a performer, she was a soprano, uh, in Sydney called Dorothy Rudder, and it had all this superb uh, material in there. But I found it when I lifted the lid, it was like ghosts coming out in a weird way. I thought, oh, God, how am I going to deal with this? And I was very curious about putting it all together. But then when I had the time, I thought, come on, it's time to investigate the suitcase. And I did, and I put the whole thing together and found an incredible life inside there. And then the person who had sent the material over, Fred's cousin, sent me more material. And it became a sort of social history, too, of his family, because it had like World War I soldiers were died and Dorothy had a sensational divorce, which was very public in the 1920s. And uh, she also performed in the um, in, at Covent Garden chorus until World War II broke out and then she died at 47. So, but there was also the most exquisite photographs in there, um, shipboard menus. So I'll put that together. And I thought this is going to be too hard for any publisher to want to publish. It was like 300 photos, uh, over 100,000 words. I thought, I'm going to just give this away for free. I've received so much. I've received my life through our medical system. And so I donated it to Theatre Heritage Australia for their uh, website. And then when I made my own website, I've put it on there as well. And it's called Dainty Diva. So that got me into writing. And I thought, well, I'll write about my illness, and which I did. And uh, then I thought, well, I'll try and find a publisher. I tried nine times, and I'm about to turn 70, so I'm thinking, um, you know, it takes so long to do that whole process, even just to write uh, to a publisher and say, you know, with a pitch. I thought, I haven't got time for this. And, and Fred uh, said, well, why don't we self-publish? And 
I wasn't 100% convinced. And I thought, well, why not? So that's sort of how it came about, that I had professional help the whole way through this book. I had an editor, a book designer, self-publishing mentor, and also a book cover designer. And that made life much simpler. And, you know, I didn't have to struggle to try and get it onto any of the platforms. Mm. It took more than one person to put a whole book together. <laughs> certainly, certainly, yes. So Cathy uh, Koning has proved that self-publishing can happen. She has a number of books out there, but the one we spoke most about was Lifeblood. You've got a very good website too. So if anybody's interested in uh, finding Cathy's books, they're via her website, Cathy Koning Writer and also via Amazon. Thanks, Cathy. Oh, thank you so much, Jan. It's been great to speak with you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.